Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on May 30th, 2021, during our Sunday evening service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 10.30 a.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.45 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. The key to the future is in the past. God has revealed many, many things about the future to us. Now, I know that He hasn't revealed all the things we wish He had revealed. I know that He hasn't revealed all the things in our individual lives that we wish that he had revealed. But God has, from the very beginning, given us the hope of prophecy. I want you to go back with me one more time to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We find ourselves many times in the first few chapters of Genesis... And, of course, that's because this is where it began. This is where our story begins. This isn't where God's story begins. God is infinite, eternal. God had been making plans before the foundation of the earth. God knew that this species that He was going to create and call to obey Him and call to love Him was going to rebel. He knew what Adam was going to do, and He already had a plan in place He knew before the foundation of the world that His Son, Jesus Christ, would become the Lamb of God. That He would die for the sins of all mankind. That He would rise from the dead. And He would, in so doing, give us the opportunity to escape the curse forever and ever. Now, as we saw this morning, we're still living in the hope phase of that promise. But... Make no mistake, as much as we groan and as much tension as we feel today, we know from what has been revealed in the past that our future is an eternity. In Christ, our future is an eternity with Him. Eternity with all of us who are in Christ. The future is bright for the believer. And sometimes we forget that. And so we have to go back. We have to start over. And tonight we're going back to the beginning. Now, we have seen that prophecy is a great gift that God has given us to reveal His power, to show His heart for us, to comfort us in knowing what is to come in the big picture, to warn those who have not yet repented that they need to repent while there is still time. And we've seen that God uses uh, prophecy both as a promise to comfort us, to show what He's going to do, and also as a proving ground. It's a way that God proves Himself to be all that He says that He is, but it's also a place where He proves us. And as Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 reveal, as John repeats in 1 John chapter 4 when he uh, tells us that we need to test the spirits to make sure that they are from God, that we are following the Holy Spirit, not the spirit of Antichrist who so masterfully masquerades as the Holy Spirit oftentimes, that we uh, have a test. And it's a test of faith and a test of obedience. 
and as Deuteronomy says, a test of love. A test to see if we really do love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a proving ground, prophecy really is about faith, isn't it? Now, we have things that have been revealed, prophecies that have been fulfilled. And it's amazing when you study prophecy and some of the prophecies that we've seen in this series that God has specifically said before they happened, here's exactly what is going to happen. Here's when it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. And it happens. And we go, wow, that's amazing. And the skeptics go, well, that must have been forged. That must have been written after the fact. There's no way that Daniel could have known that. There's no way that, that the prophets could have predicted that. Uh, but of course, as the evidence mounts from things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and other historical sources, we can see that, no, that these are prophecies written before the fulfillment, showing God's power. But there are many prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And because it's such a test of faith, many Christians don't really want their faith stretched. They don't want to deny the Bible, but they don't want to really have to step out in faith when it comes to the literal fulfillment of prophecies. And so the solution to that for many, tragically, is to just say that it's all allegory. It's all symbolism. It's not really going to be fulfilled literally. See, that way I don't have to, quote-unquote, reject the Bible, and I don't have to really exercise a lot of faith either. I just don't worry about prophecy. I just don't, I, I just don't focus on prophecy. It, it makes my head hurt. Prophecy is, is a struggle. That's why the Apostle Paul commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to despise not prophecy. Because prophecy is hard work, and it takes faith to believe that God will fulfill His promises the exact way He was. Now, that is not to say, as we've said over the last few weeks, that's not to say that God doesn't fulfill things symbolically. Sometimes prophecy is a pattern. It follows a pattern. Sometimes it is illustrated to us in a picture, as we saw last week. And the biblical term that we introduced you to last week for finding revelation through illustration is the Hebrew word midrash. Uh, it's found a couple of times in uh, the book of Second Chronicles, and it literally means inquiring into. But it's a way that, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul and Jesus and uh, many, if not all, of the New Testament writers use this principle to interpret and understand the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which they simply called the Scriptures. And what is a midrash? It's saying... Okay, here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. It is, we do take it literally, and then we apply it to our lives. But once we've done that, we say, well, okay, here's what it means, but is there something else that it might mean? Is there, is an, is there an illustration? And we don't throw out the literal to just hold on to the illustrations and the pictures that we can kind of fit, but neither do we throw out the illustrations and the pictures. We don't, we don't scribble all over the pictures that God has so beautifully drawn for us in the pages of Scripture either. We have to hold on to both. We have to understand that we ground our doctrinal beliefs on what the Bible says, clearly says, but then to reinforce those beliefs, to, to show us that we do have a correct grasp on the theology and the doctrine, many times God will paint a picture for us that will 
show that prophecy. And so some of the ones that we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that the Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic picture that was given to the nation of Israel that we still can use today, even though we're not under the Old Covenant, we're not under uh, the law, uh, we're not under obligation to observe Passover every year, but it's good to study Passover because we see the picture of Jesus. We see the picture of Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that so beautifully pictures the blood of our Savior on the cross. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Jesus is the rock, that, that the rock that the Israelites were brought to that Moses struck Twice, he was only supposed to strike it the first time, supposed to speak to it the second time. That was a picture of Jesus coming twice. And the first time Jesus would be struck, but the second time he will not be struck. And because Moses messed up the picture, that's why God judged him so severely. And he wouldn't allow him at that time to go into the promised land. So we have seen pictures we have seen patterns we've seen the the illustrations that god uh, revelation through illustration that god has given to us tonight we're going to go back to the very beginning and i want to show you that this is nothing new we've looked at this prophecy before we've in fact we looked at this verse just a few months ago back in i guess it was december maybe november uh, at the end of november when we started to talk before christmas about the promise of the warrior king that was going to come and that was going to deliver us. We looked at it from that sense. Today I want to look at this verse again, but I want to focus on the prophetic elements and uh, prophecy itself. And I want to show you as we look at some pictures that God drew for us and some promises that God made to us after the fall, after the fall, after man failed, that we see the beauty and the complexity of the proto-prophecy. This is not only what we call the proto-evangelium, the first presentation of the gospel in all of human history and all of the Bible, but it is also the first prophecy that God has given us. And when we look at the, how complex and how beautiful this is, it's like when we look at this verse and begin to turn it, it's like a diamond as we see these different elements that God packed into a few phrases, all of the different ways that God was going to fulfill this prophecy. I think that it will... Uh, hopefully give you a sense of awe at the greatness of our God and a sense of comfort in the fact that he has everything under control. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he lied to the woman. He got her deceived. The Apostle Paul says it wasn't Adam who was deceived. It was the woman. And Adam just rebelled. Adam knew that, he, that the devil was lying, but he went with it anyways. And how many times do we know that sin is not going to fulfill the promises it's making? But we do it anyways, because we want to, because we're willful like our father, Adam. And so they sinned in verse 7. They, their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, how many of you know God doesn't ask questions for information? God asks questions to 
to get us to think. Not to, it's like a, when the teacher asks questions of the students, hopefully, hopefully it's not because the teacher's trying to figure out what's going on with the textbook, although that did happen to me once when I was a substitute years ago. I was substituted at CCA back, this was 22 years ago, I think, and I was in a math class, and um, I don't remember exactly which student it was. I think it was one of the Rankin girls that I had to ask to come up and say, hey, can you explain how this lesson works? That's never a good thing. But I was just a substitute. God doesn't ask questions because he needs the information. Hast thou eaten of the tree? And the man said, verse 12, the woman whom thou gavest me to be, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, factually true, but major, major fail. We see the beginnings of the uh, marital conflict that everyone faces because we're different and we're both sinners. My wife and I have a great marriage, but I'm still a sinner. I won't speak for her. I'll let her speak for herself, but I'm still a sinner, okay? And so I, and so I have a tendency to blame shift and to make excuses. That's, I get that from my dad, Adam, right? It's Adam's fault. The woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree. God said to the woman, hey, okay, that's true. What did you do? Well, the serpent beguiled me. I did eat. And so the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And verse 15 is the great beginning of prophecy here. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It is shall bruise thy head. Really should be he. Because it says next, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here we have the first prophecy. A deliverer is coming. Now there's some elements to this prophecy. First of all, I want to show you as we look at prophecy as a promise, I want you to see the circumstances again. Mankind has fallen. The scheme that the trap that Satan set has sprung and he's got Adam and Eve in his trap. Satan's still still setting traps for each of us today. That's why the Apostle Paul says, don't be ignorant of his schemes. And this curse brought, uh, this sin brought a curse on all creation, Romans 5. Whereas by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin. There was no death before Adam's sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We are all born as sinners. Even if we haven't sinned yet as as a child in the womb, still, nevertheless, we have a sin nature that we are born with. And that's why we are all susceptible to death. So God then makes a pronouncement to Satan. And this pronouncement to Satan is really a promise to us. It's a promise to Adam, a promise to Eve, but a promise to all of us of this deliverer. And remember what we have said, Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus is the... Oh, you guys need to have this next week when I ask you next week, okay? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The reason that we study prophecy is because we're studying about Jesus' testimony. It's not just so that we know what's going to happen in the future. It's not just for us. It is Jesus 
testimony. So that's the promise that's made. But I want you, as we move now to prophecy as proving ground, I want you to see the immediate evidence that God gives them that these promises are going to be fulfilled. Because remember, we talked about the fact that God will sometimes give prophecies that are um, uh, simultaneously given so that one of them, when it's fulfilled in the near future, it can prove, it can prove that the prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in the very distant future will be fulfilled. Well, there's another way that God would prove prophecy, and that is through the miraculous, and that is through miracles. Well, this one is a little bit different in, in the sense that what proves the prophecy is the fulfillment of the curse. The fact that the curses that God reveals happened immediately showed Adam and Eve that God was not playing and that God wasn't making things up and that God was going to fulfill these promises. So what are those things? Well, we saw the curse on the serpent. Look at what he said unto the woman. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of, the, out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." Now, we'll press into these curses and these consequences of sin at a different point, but I, my emphasis uh, tonight is just the fact that those things began to happen immediately. And when the thorns began to grow, and when the tension in the marriage began to increase, and when uh, Eve finally got pregnant and she found out that God wasn't joking when she said that it was going to be incredibly painful, they realized the promises of God. So every time a, a woman has trouble with her pregnancy, and I be careful I say this because I'm a man, right? And you've got to be careful how you say things. Um, I would just encourage you, um, having never gone through that, and a doubtful I ever will, that you use those times as a reminder of why we suffer, and use those moments as reminders that the deliverer was going to come and has come now. Now we look back and say he has come. So let's start to, let's start to unpack the prophecy, okay? Let's look at this prophecy as promise, yes, but also as pattern and picture. And let's test some of these specific elements. I want you to see just how, how compacted this single verse, 315, is as it relates to the future including some things that are yet future. First of all, notice that the serpent would have a seed and the woman would also have a seed. Now, this is the first pronouncement that you will be able to identify the Messiah because he will be born of the seed of the woman. And why is that significant? Because as we all know, the man carries the seed except for one time. There was one time when the Holy Spirit placed the seed inside of the womb of a woman. And that was in 
Mary. And when God supernaturally conceived, and, and Isaiah repeats this, remember, behold, behold, pay attention, guys, the virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel because it's God with us. Because who else could be born that's not born of a man and a woman, but born of God and woman? Only God Himself. This seed would become the Savior. But notice also, we'll get into this more at a later date, but notice also the serpent has a seed as well. And the serpent seed will oppose the Savior. Now generally we just take this I say we. Generally, most of you, probably, or most people, just take this symbolically. And certainly there is a symbolism here. There's a picture here. Because Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you guys, John chapter 8, you guys are of your father the devil. Amen. You're liars, you're murderers, just like your father of the devil. He's been lying from the beginning. He's, he's the father of lies, Jesus said, and you're just like your father. Now, Jesus was not saying that the Jews there were literally of the seed of Satan in the same way that Jesus was the seed of God. But does that mean if the seed of the woman is literal that we should not take the seed of Satan as literal as well? I would argue that we do. In fact, I would say that as we get into the book of Revelation, we see Satan pictured as the ancient serpent, Revelation chapter 12, but he's also pictured as the fiery red dragon. And there's another entity who is the real main villain underneath Satan, or or the one who plays the biggest role on earth. And we know him most commonly as the Antichrist. But the book of Revelation more commonly, I think it's 33 times, refers to, refers to this man as the beast. The beast. Now, is that just a term describing his character? Or is he telling us that this man who is going to come is not completely human? Because what is seed? It's genetic information. That's all it is. We're playing God right now in laboratories around the world messing with the genetic information of human beings. You can, this is not science fiction anymore, folks. This is science fact. You can, you can look this up online yourself. I'm not going to go into right now uh, a lot of details, but you can look up Chimera. And you can look up the fact that, that in laboratories around the world, many places legally doing this, they are mixing human and animal DNA. And they are creating monstrosities. And it's not science fiction anymore. So, we will talk at a later date about how Satan may have a seed and how the Antichrist could be the literal seed of Satan. It could mean that Satan personally is involved in the rearranging of his DNA We'll talk about that at a later date. But what I want to show you here is that there is a literal and a symbolic in that statement. We know that the seed of the woman is literal. 
And we know that the seed of the serpent is symbolic. There's no reason to believe it is not literal as well. In fact, that's really where we begin to see just a few pages over in Genesis chapter 6. When we see that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and that they were fair and they took them wise of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is his flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Whatever was going on was so gross and so severe in the eyes of God that he said, I'm only giving, you, I'm only giving the planet Earth another 120 years before I wipe it clean. Well, what was going on? Verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we see the reality that was believed by the ancient Jews, the reality that was believed by the early church up really until about the 4th century, the church began to reject this idea of the sons of God being actual fallen angels that cohabitated with the daughters of men. And nowadays that's considered uh, crazy to believe that literal interpretation of Scripture. But I'm, what I'm merely saying is let's just let Scripture be Scripture and let's let God speak. What does it say? Not what do I think it means, what does it actually say? There is, I believe, based on these verses, the authority of Scripture, a literal seed of Satan himself who will be the one that he gives all his power to. It's why he'll be able to do miracles that mimic and counterfeit the miracles of Jesus Christ, which Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to do that. The whole world's going to be deceived except for a few. There is a literal seed of the woman. I believe there's a literal seed of Satan as well, not just symbolic. Notice also, number two, there will be ongoing enmity between the serpent and the woman. And this enmity would be focused on the conflict between the seeds. This is why we're, set, we're told that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's why we're commanded in 1 John, love not the world, neither the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because from the beginning, we have been engaged in a spiritual war that God, God declared. Satan started it in the sense that he came and caused Adam and Eve to fall. And God said, oh, you want to you wanna start something with me? We're going to go to war. And we're gonna, I'm going to place enmity between you and between the woman that is still raging today. It's why we have spiritual conflict. It's why we have so much deception in this world. It's why we have so much death and crime and evil. Because the world is not in the state that God created it. Amen. It is cursed, but it is also in conflict. It is in conflict. We are in conflict with the prince of this world, Satan himself. Notice also number three. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. He's going to come and he's going, this deliverer is going to come, Jesus said, and he's going to crush your head. This seed of the woman, this deliverer is going to come and he, Satan, will crush your head. Now, we know this prophecy is symbolically fulfilled. We know it's symbolically fulfilled in the church age. Because what did Jesus say he was going to do in Matthew chapter 18? On this rock, which I believe was as he was standing at the uh, foot of uh, Mount um, 
Oh, my mind went blank again. Anyways, as he was standing at the foot of the mountain where he had the transfiguration, and he says, it's, I'm, it's going to hit, I'm, I'm going to be driving home tonight, the name of the mountain is going to hit, Mount Hermon, there it is, right there, Mount Hermon. He's standing at the foot of Mount Hermon. We know that he's, he's giving the message uh, in the region of Mount Hermon because of, of the text. So Jesus at, at the foot of Mount Hermon says, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul told the church at Rome in Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 20, that the, that the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. Under your feet. So symbolically, the victory that we are promised in the church, the victory that we talked about this morning, the victory that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, which we'll be getting to eventually at some point as we go together through the book of Ephesians, is the victory over the conflict, the spiritual war that's been raging. But listen, I don't believe this is just symbolic either. I don't believe that we're just going to symbolically crush Satan. Put a finger in Genesis chapter 3 and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Because I want to show you that this statement is expanded and explained in much greater detail in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 28. And that is confirmed, by the way, in the book of Revelation, which we're not going to take the time to go to tonight. But Ezekiel chapter 28, you can look up the, the references, the cross-references to Revelation as well to see how this is ultimately fulfilled. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man... Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, or Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden. Now, the king of uh, Tyre or Tyre was never in Eden. He's obviously speaking to the, maybe Satan was, was actually possessing this king at the time, but certainly he was the power behind him. And he said, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, the diamond, beryl, onks, jasmine, sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. Workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. By the way, don't those sound like all that metal, all that gold, all, doesn't that sound like scales? You say you're taking it too, too literally. Well, what's the most common descriptions of Satan in the Bible. Serpent and dragon. We'll come back to that at some other point. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But you were the anointed cherub that covereth, God says, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Some translators believe that's a reference to the planets. The, the, the stones of fire that Satan was... Uh, traversing thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee and by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned therefore i will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of god and i will destroy thee, O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness i will cast thee to the ground I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Friend, that did not happen yet. Amen. That hasn't happened yet. Now, 
We know that Satan was stripped of his heavenly duties. We know that verse 16 has been fulfilled. But we're still waiting on the rest of this. Verse 18, thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And guess what? We will be there on that day. And we will witness that firsthand when Satan is reduced to ash. But that's not going to be the end of him. Because... All that behold thee and they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shalt thou be any more. Revelation tells us that he will be thrown into the lake of fire to suffer forever and ever and ever at that point. All those ashes will be sprinkled in the lake of fire. Listen, this is the future judgment of Satan. Now the past judgment we've seen he stripped of his heavenly duties, verses 11 through 16. This may be what Jesus was referring to in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But he may have been also been speaking prophetically about what was going to happen, because notice this is a fivefold judgment. Only the first part has happened yet. Only the verse, first part. Did you know that Satan has not yet been cast completely out of heaven? We read about that in Revelation chapter 12. We know that that hasn't happened yet. We know that the war in heaven hasn't happened yet because what happens in Revelation chapter 12 after Satan is thrown out of heaven, the saints rejoice because the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. These are the people, God says, that have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Now, If that event happened before God cursed Adam and Eve, well, who are all the saints in heaven that overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony? Jesus hadn't even shed his blood yet. That's a future event. That that hasn't completely happened yet. Satan still has access to heaven. It's why in the book of Job, he's able to go to the throne room of heaven and he's able to make accusations against Job. It's why... Uh, In the book of Zechariah, he's able to go and make accusations against Joshua, the priest, the the priest of Israel, the high priest at the time. He has access to heaven, but there's a day coming when he will be cast completely to the ground. The global defeat and capture of Satan will occur, Revelation 20, right after the battle of Armageddon where he will be in prison for a thousand years. Then Revelation 20 says he'll be released. Verse 18 of Ezekiel prophesies his final defeat when he is consumed by fire. That's exactly what Revelation 20 verses 7 through 9 describe. And then ultimately verse 19, his eternal damnation. All of that is unpacked in Ezekiel, but it's placed in one little statement in Genesis 3.15. This deliverer is going to come, Satan. And when he comes, he's going to crush your head. And all of your authority and all your power will mean nothing. That's why Satan was so desperate to get Jesus to sin. It's why he tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. It's why he was willing to give up everything that he had. All his authority and power over the earth. 
He's trying to, he was trying to escape his destruction. But of course he failed. Now I'm going to show you one more part of this prophecy. Notice how back in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He shall bruise thy head. Notice how it ends. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Do you realize that this prophecy was literally fulfilled on the cross of Jesus Christ? Amen. Jesus willingly stretched out his arms and allowed them to drive those spikes through his hands which in the, the Greek word would indicate this whole part okay, of your arm in the Greek was a hand. It wasn't actually driven through the palm, so they wouldn't have been able to hold him up. But this in the Greek, the wrist, is considered part of the hand. And we know from the way that Romans did executions that they could place a nail through the bones here, and the bones are strong enough right there to hold the weight of the body. And Jesus willfully allowed those nails to be driven through his hands because of his love for you, because of his love for me. And they drove, they put his feet together, they drove that spike through both of his ankles. And what happened to his ankle? Oh, it bruised. It bruised. Amen. The cross is in Genesis 3.15. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Now, praise God, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, which is why he's able to save us by grace, which is why we're able to call on him by faith and ask for his forgiveness and ask for uh, eternal life in Christ. But that was given to us as a literal prophecy, a picture, yes, but a literal prophecy. Literally, his heel was bruised in the crucifixion. But notice also there's symbolism here, too. Jeremiah 37, I'm going to close with this verse. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Speaking of the judgment of Satan, you know, is going to come after the tribulation. Well, before that, Satan's going to take his best shots. And Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, the day of judgment, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, if you go to a book of names or if you type in uh, define Jacob, your search will probably say deceiver. Okay? That's what his name has come to mean. Supplanter. That's what his name has come to mean. But you know what the Hebrew word from which the name of Jacob is taken? Do you know what the Hebrew word actually is? Heal. And why was he called Heal. You remember when he was born? He was the second of twins. But he came out right after his brother Esau. And what did he do? He grabbed the heel. And so they said, we're going to call him heel. Do you know that Jesus not only was literally bruised in his heel, but the heel of Jesus symbolically, the people of Jesus, Israel, Jacob, Jacob, the heel is also going to be bruised. Isn't that amazing? Do you see how much prophecy is in this one verse? Do you see how God shows us at the very beginning that prophecy is, is complex? Prophecy is, is like a diamond. And it's literal. Yes, it's literal. But it, God's not limited to the literal. He draws pictures as well. Powerful pictures. 
We need to see those pictures when we go to God's Word. Would you join me in a word of prayer? We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask you to be seated. You can sing along with us or just uh, spend some time in thought about what Jesus Christ did when He came to die for us, how He died for us, but it was death to deliver us from the power of the devil. The reason the Son of God came, John tells us in 1 John, to destroy the works of the devil. Father God, as we close this service, thank you. Seems so insufficient to give you praise for what it was that you did when you sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross, when you raised him from the dead, when you offer us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Father, God, may our hearts be amazed by not only the gift of Jesus Christ, but the gift of prophecy that tells us about this and that, and that predicts things that are going to happen that we know will happen in the future. The Deliverer came, God, but we know your Deliverer is going to come back for us. And so, God, when we fail, may we come to you remembering just how much you've already shown us you love us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.